Well, welcome back to our panel discussion. Uh, and thank you very much for coming to what is the second part of our Asylum Trilogy, which is a collaboration between, uh, in this case, two historians of medicine and, and talking birds. And I think some of you also came to uh, Trade in Lunacy, which, which happened around this time last year. And uh, I have to let you know there have been a couple of changes, unfortunately, to the panel. This was to be chaired initially by uh, Maria Luddy, Professor Maria Luddy, who is uh, Chair of Modern Irish History at the University of Warwick. But unfortunately, she uh, has fallen ill and is unable to chair. So I have uh, uh, taken over. And also Liz Hardwick, um, a consultant psychiatrist, was going to join us tonight, but she has had an emergency to attend to, which I guess is a professional hazard, alas. So I'm going to start uh, by introducing myself. My name is Hilary Marland, and I'm Professor of History at the University of Warwick. And together with Catherine Cox, I've been working for a couple of years on a, a project on Irish migration to Lancashire, and we're particularly interested in the high incidence of admission to Lancashire Asylum. So we're looking at the period from the Great Famine up to 1921. And our research has created um, much of the material on which this play has been based. And Catherine is director for the Centre of History of Medicine at Ireland at University College Dublin. And we're also joined by director and writer Peter Kahn, who is responsible for the, the wonderful script and also for directing the play. And we're also delighted to have uh, Vivian Joseph join us, who's completing a PhD in philosophy at the University of Warwick and also, also worked in community mental health care for many years. And he also directs um, a master's uh, module on, which looks in a very interdisciplinary way at problems and issues in psychiatry. So I'm hoping to, it's usual for the chair to ask the first question, but as, I, as I'm so heavily involved in the project, I would like to open the, the floor directly to questions. So has anyone got a question for us? Well, it's something we've become very interested in the project because you're, you're absolutely right. There seems to be very high rates of, of mental ill health amongst both the, the Irish who, who stay in Ireland but also the Irish who, who migrate. And from a historical perspective, we've become very interested in, in the kind of Irish diaspora. And there's been work on Australia and North America which shows that what we're finding in in England and in Lancashire in particular is something that is, is a worldwide phenomena. But you're absolutely right, in second and third generation Irish there, there are high rates of, of mental, mental disorder and schizophrenia uh, and depression are, are recorded. And I'm not sure there's ever been a really satisfactory answer, answer to, to this issue. I mean, I think Irish migrants appear to be able to access services, whatever we think of the quality of those services. They seem historically to have been quite successful, as, as the play tries to show, at accessing them. And they, that seems to continue, I think, um, in later generations as well, present, presenting themselves for relief. And, and, and it, we see it, as we said, in other countries in Australia, in America, and elsewhere. Yeah. 
so I mean, uh, quite, well, I shouldn't really be asking questions here, but but so, um, are these higher rates um, current? So the the rates for mm, yeah. people mm. of Irish descent are okay, higher, higher compared to the proportion in the population that they. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's it's for many specific disorders as well, particularly for for schizophrenia and. I mean, I think many different explanations have been mooted, but um, it's a pity we haven't got a consultant psychiatrist with us at this moment. But I'm not sure there's been really a satisfactory answer to... to I mean, of course, migrants, as you say, share in this phenomenon more broadly. You know. um, there's also been a lot of research in, in Asian migration and the relationship with mental illness and, and in Afro-Caribbean populations. So this phenomenon seems to be shared by many groups who migrate and it, it was interestingly enough this pic this phenomenon was picked up way back in the 1930s when Norwegian migration was looked at specifically Norwegian migrants to North America and they found that rates amongst Norwegians who migrated rates of mental illness were also much higher so this is something that's been known about for a long time, long time yeah. and was also certainly recognized in the in the 19th centuries the, the play shows I mean I think what's comes across quite well in the play as well as you know we have this cliched idea of Irish communities sort of looking after each other and supporting each other but clearly there's limits to that or these people somehow slip out of those systems and um, possibly because they're wandering looking for work or because their behavior is no longer acceptable for various reasons but those communities the network migration that we're so used to doesn't seem to work for everyone. There has been some work done on the sort of 1950s, 1960s periods by historians um, and sociologists who've tried to explain that. Um, and they've tried to look at the types of employment um, that Irish migrants uh, went for. Uh, and of course, a lot of the employment um, in the period, some of it was obviously the car, in the, the car motor industry, but other employments such as the building um, uh, works, they a lot of the problems associated with that was, of course, payment was made in the pubs um, and, of course, therefore encouraged people who were themselves maybe migrants on their own to actually consume alcohol, which, of course, then was related to, to um, mental illness. So, do you know what I mean? There has been a certain amount of work done on, on those periods. And again, it sort of shows this um, repeat, I suppose, of the, the same thing we saw this evening of this, you know, single men, isolated going to certain environments, the environment in which they find themselves becoming isolated and then, you know, experiencing problems. Well, it could be in for many, many years and there was there was one patient who was, whose yeah. name was given who went in That's the 1860s. 40 years. 40 years. Was, there, was, there was the longest one. I mean, people were... Um, the ones that were really severe cases considered to be incurable were, were uh, later transferred to places like Whittingham Asylum, um, where they might have spent the rest of their lives. So yeah, it was a long, long period, and so sometimes they were released un unrelieved. Um, so it was it was variable. I I don't know if there are any. I didn't come across any actual concrete statistics. Just those particular case notes of, of people. Yeah, there were some, some records in the annual reports and you know, the rates of discharge did tend to be 
lower for the Irish patients um, in the asylum. And one of the things that the, the doctors were also pointing out was there was nowhere for them to go. They didn't have friends or relatives in the area. And that's right, many were transferred to the, the, there were four big Lancashire asylums and Whittingham ended up as being the one where people were sent as a last resort and they were very rarely discharged from there. And it was, the doctors wrote in the annual reports, well, one reason we're sending them here is it's not particularly easy to get to and they don't have any visitors. No one's going to come and collect them, so we may as well send them off. Um, but many spent several decades and many died yeah. in the asylums as, as well. Because there was, a <coughs> excuse me, there was a policy that if you had a family member, you could be transferred back to the workhouse because there you could be visited and you were still within. Whereas the Irish were not identified as less suitable for transfer back to the, the workhouse and instead, as Hilary said, to the Whittingham Asylum where there would be no need for a family to visit. So you're saying that you weren't allowed visitors? Well, no, you were allowed them, but they were just so seldom visited that there was no uh, yeah. sort of um, yeah. need yeah. to worry about relatives' access. Um, was, was this also your experience when you worked in mental health care of this, this sort of question of how much did a role did isolation and kind of that lack of community play a role, do you think? Well, but of course everything's changed with care in the community. So, I mean, there aren't... Um, now we have psychiatric hospitals where people are encouraged not to just stay for very long. Mm. So you have acute inpatient facilities um, and then you have people sort of on day visits. I mean, they, they, it's expensive. Well, that's one take on it, certainly, is it's quite expensive and so there's no will to keep people in hospital. So that's a huge difference. I mean, the, 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 I think the nearest, the nearest asylum to Leamington mm. was Hatton mm. in Warwick and that was shut down, I don't know, in the 1980s, mm. 90s, something like that. So that's a huge difference. Um, but certainly with um, migrants, I mean, I didn't notice uh, so much, um, uh, so that's why I asked a question about uh, um, uh, second, third generation Irish um, migrants, I suppose, or, or um, British now, but um, uh, w with South Asian migrants, um, uh, and in particular, we had a dedicated worker for um, women, mm. Uh, not all the so the South Asians are mostly in, in Leamington, the area that we were in, it was um, Punjabi women, um, many of whom didn't speak English. And mm. so, if the marriage had broken down, for example, and that meant they became very isolated, community then didn't support mm. them. So, I mean, there might be reasons why communities, uh, also in the case of yeah. the Irish, then yeah. might be unable to support someone. Um, and so, you know, it was felt, I mean, we, we got funding for a, a worker just mm. for that mm. community. It's hard to sort of imagine the contrast, really, with current care in, in, in psychiatry and yeah. what was happening in the late 19th century, because these asylums, <coughs> as the play indicates, were just growing and growing, mm. and it was becoming an incredibly desperate situation, and they kept building annexes and wings, and, and the population in <coughs> Lancashire, it's the second largest population after uh, London, um, they were taking thousands of patients and, and they were really desperate about this as a huge problem. And in London, they even had a specialist asylum for, for Jewish migrants, uh, Conley Hatch, um, which was partly because of the rationale that you could uh, deal with kosher food and you could provide a better standard of care, really. But the scale was so 
enormous in the 19th century of incarceration and um, the, the long stays, as, as we've indicated. And there was at one stage the proposal to actually have an Irish asylum in Lancashire. I mean, yeah. it never became a reality, but it was certainly discussed briefly that because of the, the sheer numbers, mm. that this might be a way of dealing with it and providing Roman Catholic religious service and etc. etc. I mean, they never went ahead, but gives you an indication of how worried they were about it. And of course they were up in arms about the cost because it was just a phenomenal cost on local taxes and um, the, the, the Preston Chronicle, I think, was much more vitriolic <laughs> than even the Liverpool Mercury in condemning the yeah. Irish for causing this huge burden on, on the poor rate. I mean, I think the, now you mention it, um, the one or two examples, I think, was when they were trying to return a person back to Ireland. Um, they were trying to find out whether there was family or whether they should be returned back to a workhouse in Ireland. Don't remember a huge, I mean, they certainly asked about relatives, whether relatives were in Liverpool or the Lancashire area, um, and they would make reference to, um, you know, relatives are in Ireland. But beyond that, I don't remember a huge number of attempts to actually contact him in Ireland, but you may have a better memory of that, Eric. Well, the, the fiddler is... The, the fiddler is the example, he's... <laughs> and yeah. Peter's just adapted the story of the fiddler, but in fact, he, mm. there was an instance of um, a fiddler turning up at the asylum. He'd been sent on very quickly okay, from the yeah. workhouse, um, and he literally got off the boat, gone to the workhouse, and then was moved to the asylum. And that, that was quite a frequent phenomenon. People were moved rather quickly through the institutions. And there was a claim that he was from a noble family and that he composed music. And the asylum doctors were pretty skeptical about this, but it actually turned out to be completely true. And his sister did come over from, from Ireland to, to take him home. So you get occasional instances of that. A lot of effort some points to repatriate. Yes, yeah, repatriate is big. Um, patients. But um, not necessarily to family often. Not to necessarily to family and, and sometimes literally to repatriate them to the docks That's, in yeah. Dublin. Um, so sort of deportation in effect. Yes, yes, it's a deportation and dumping mm -hmm. really. Um, it was pretty harsh. But after a while they thought that was too expensive as well because the, the uh, Irish would often come back again, so there was a lot of toing and froing with with this um, with this process. No, it uh, the, it was um, it's as it says in the play that um, the disappointment where uh, comes from. The uh, the expectations that it's going to be better, that it couldn't be worse than than the place that you've come from, and getting there and then finding that you're treated as a, a second class citizen, and that the place that you consider to be the idea of the promised land is far from that, and then the, the biggest cause of disappointment is failure. You know, you, you're failing to find a job, you're failing to find uh, a, a job that will um, feed your family because whole families came over and quite often people were sending money back to Ireland as well. So it was that, that the build-up of those things which, which caused that, that idea of disappointment. Um, and because I got that, I, well, everything that came came from research from uh, Hillary 
and Catherine, but also the, the postgrads um, students who did an awful lot of research uh, from in England uh, and Ireland. Every time I had a question, I'd just send it out to them and I'd get reams of stuff uh, back. So, uh, and I think disappointment came from, from, one, of the, from one of you lot, didn't it? Uh, I can't remember which one of you it was that, uh, <laughs> that was talking about uh, disappointment. I think the important thing to bear in mind is that in the second half of the 19th century, migration is seen as a sort of way of life for Irish people at this stage. You know, the expectation is that at least one or two of your family will migrate. So there is this idea that it's the expected part of a young man or young woman's life. Um, and when you can participate in that successfully, what does that mean about you and your sense of disappointment as well? So, yeah. And I suppose this is all just following this devastating... Yeah, but then family. it continues on as well, mm. you know, sure. it's sort of... Obviously, migration existed between um, England and Ireland, or rather Ireland and England, pre-famine. <coughs> it accelerates during the famine and then just continues on um, for, throughout the late 19th into the 20th century, as we know. Right. They, they always do this, right? <laughs> Every time. You know, they, these, these, these are people with the brains the size of asteroids, <laughs> and so they turn to the thickest person in the panel. Um, however, I can talk about this. Um, moral management was, was actually, um, the idea of it was... Catholic, by the way. Yeah, well, well actually yeah. It, was, it was formulated in, actually in the 18th century, uh, and the phrase uh, came from uh, Thomas Bakewell. Uh, and it, it came from the private asylums, and that, that the notion of, that the, as, it's, as it's framed in the play, that if you expect somebody to be uh, rational, you can help them become rational. Mm. Uh, and you encourage the, uh, the positive elements of people's behavior. But it, I mean, it was all, and, and discouraged uh, the bad things. So it was that notion of expecting a kind of, and, and creating an environment where, where that um, moral, man, the management of people's morals and the creation of a, uh, of a morality uh, could take place. And, and it was transferred, that notion was transferred to the public asylums, like Rainhill, which was fine when, when you had a few, uh, relatively few um, mm. inmates or uh, uh, patients, but as soon as you started to get more and more, it, it, it became much more difficult to do that, and it became the cases of containment or uh, less individual attention. It demands individual attention. The, that notion of moral management. Uh, so it was, it was labour intensive, intensive, and it only worked in smaller institutions. It's also it, it was to do with the the environment they were trying to create as well. Rainhill, the the, the grounds are beautiful. Uh, right, they were beautiful, they're all built on now. Uh, and, and it was that notion of you, you tried to give fresh air and, uh, and space, and, and which, which also endows people with a sense of value. If you give people nice surroundings, they, they become more valued. So that was, the, that was the notion of moral management. So it came from the 18th century, private asylums, and was tried to be um, acted upon in the, the public asylums. It's particularly associated with the, the York Retreat, which yeah. was mentioned, which was set up by a group of Quakers, actually tea merchants, not, not psychiatrists. The, uh, William Tuke was just concerned about the, the state of mental health care. Well, there'd been a death, hadn't there? Was there was a death in, mm. in the in public asylum yeah. in yeah. York of a Quaker girl, which uh, sort of prompted. 
And uh, I mean, there was a lot of disappointment in the asylum system, really, yeah. as Peter's mm. indicated, because the early 19th century was a period of great optimism mm. about the ability to cure and, and to provide better conditions. It was seen as a you know, great, great reform period. And then, as Peter said, everything got out of control as these institutions got bigger and bigger um, and, and couldn't maintain this ideal system of care, really. And I think that cycle sort of carried on. I mean, there's been mm. optimism both about mm. understanding mental health um, and cure, I suppose, um, and and then disappointment. And I mean, I, it's not. I, I don't see it as having stopped yet. The sort of yo-yo from optimism mm. to disappointment. And in terms of community care as yeah. well, sure. because there was such high hopes for for that as a, a new yeah. approach. And um, for a lot of people, it just became a way of not caring, of not providing services for them. Yeah, so. and also that 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 the, the they never envisaged there would be so much demand on the system, I, I guess. Yeah. As someone who's worked in mental health care, do you think asylums shouldn't have been closed? Or mental hospitals? Or as no. they were known by the late 20th century? Well, I, I, I don't know. I think that's a really difficult question. But there, there, there was someone who, uh, a um, uh, visitor, uh, client, service user, um, who used to come in, uh, a mental health service user who used to come into mine in Lenton, um, who'd spent a lot of his life in Hatton um, Central Hospital, um, mm. as it was called, and he was bitterly disappointed about the fact that it shut down. He said, I don't feel safe anymore. There's young people, youth, um, who, who sort of terrorised him for cigarettes, and I mean, he just, it just didn't, you know, it, it had a community there. Yeah. Mm. They, I think they grew their own crops, or, or you, you, you know, grew some vegetables and so on. There was, I mean, he knew, he understood the system in sort of a little society, mm. which, you know, he understood and he felt safe in. And he didn't feel that in, in the community. So not for everyone, certainly. Mm. And that's, I think, at the end well, of the play, that Sarah, comes yeah. out, doesn't yeah. it? With Sarah, that sense of um, the double meaning of mm. asylum, really. Yeah. Absolutely. As the places of safety when the outside world is so difficult. Mm -hmm. and, uh Well, there was, the, the, uh, as it says in the song uh, near the beginning, there, there were um, schemes for uh, repatriation. Um, so, so it was. It was a fear that, that had a small grounding in reality, but it, it was, um, for her, it became part of her, her problems, her, her um, mental uh, disintegration, uh, which brought on by all of the other factors that, that um, affected her. Um, but yeah, people were repatriated. I think, I think if, I, if memory serves me right, it was a removal act. And basically, initially you could, after five years, um, residents, you couldn't be removed, and then they reduced it further to three years residence in Liverpool. And after that, you could not be removed. But the idea here, I think, is that that anxiety that existed initially, that was quite real, becomes part of her illness or her delusions, mm. um, which is very nicely done. In. And for her, it's, it's fear of failure as well, because she states right at the beginning, I'm not going back, whatever. And so it's, it's partly fear of the outside things that have happened to her, and fear her own fear of failing is manifested in that notion that people are going to send her back. Well, certainly there seems to be a trend in terms of mania. There seems to be a, lot, a higher number of Irish, particularly male Irish, who are given the diagnosis of mania. And of course mania is sort of a very expressive in the 19th century. 
is regarded as physically very expressive and associated with violent outbursts. And that certainly seems to be high. And also alcohol is more often. But it's quite hard to try and sort of negotiate and to think, you know, to reflect on to what extent is this reflecting stereotypes about Irish behaviour and also just tracking it as an illness. The other one that's quite interesting is general paralysis mm -hmm. of the insane, um, which was later in, you know, in the early 20th century associated with syphilis. But in this period is seen as, you know, or is associated with sort of bad living, the, the stresses of city life, all those things. And there's an argument that presented, and, and certainly from my other work I've seen it, the uh, asylum doctors argued that in asylums in Ireland you didn't see general paralysis of the insane, um, but instead the Irish had to go to other places to acquire it. And that, you see that emerging then, and they're associated with this general increase in general paralysis of the insane in Liverpool, yeah. And there's a lot of interest in, in degeneration yeah. as well by the late 19th century, this idea that different races are not as well equipped to keep up with the race of, of life, which is so nicely referenced in the, in, the, in the play. And a lot of references to the Irish as sort of losers, or as Sarah put it, those hobbling behind at the back of the race. So these ideas that, um, these ideas of sort of racial ideas really start to play quite a strong role by the late 19th century as well and impact on, on diagnosis. And of course our asylum doctor, the, sorry, the asylum doctors are aware that the asylums in Ireland are packed full of the Irish, of, of, of um, patients and it seems to be increasing at a greater rate in Ireland than it is in England. So they're aware of that context. Sorry, I cut across you. No, no, sorry. I, um, I was just going to pick up the other strand. Um, uh, so you, 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 I think you were sort of questioning, um, or you could have been understood as questioning the, the validity of the um, diagnosis that they received. Um, and I mean, I think that's, that's still an open question now. So I mean, there's a guy called Ethan Motters who's written a book called Crazy Like Us. And he puts a case forward that um, there's a, a cultural, something like, very roughly, there's a cultural element to um, the symptoms that people exhibit, um, maybe not for all disorders, but certainly gives an example of anorexia in Hong Kong, which, you know, people presented with quite different symptoms up until a certain case and so on. So uh, that's also an open question, I think. And the language difficulties must have been quite extreme within the asylum because actually by the late 19th century, Rainhill is not just taking Irish patients, they're from, they're all over the world, and particularly because of the the number of sailors and but, but migrants too coming from Scandinavia, America, China, Germany. Germany. It's just phenomenal. And you think, how did they possibly communicate with all these patients in, in the most simple terms? It must have been incredibly challenging. And they'd, I don't think they had teams of translators in the asylums. Um, not quite sure that's quite what we're arguing. Um, mm. We're certainly trying to say that the, the process of migration, as we've discussed already, um, there's something about it that seems to make some migrants vulnerable to mental illness. I think when we look at the, the size of the patient population in asylums in Ireland, you have to remember it's also linked in to a whole lot of other issues, such as migration in the other way. So um, <coughs> families who maybe, you know, in Ireland might have been able to support an ill relative if they decide to <coughs> migrate 
they're not going to be able to get into America with a, uh, a relative who is suffering, obviously, some, from some form of mental illness. So there's, you know what I mean? So there is, migration is working, is impacting on the system in Ireland in as well in that way. And there are other, other factors going on. So I don't think it's that they, they are innately more liable to mental illness. Um, and therefore, when they migrate, they're doubly impacted. Um, I think, it, you know, the reasons for the high proportion of um, patients in Ireland are slightly different. And there are different patterns of migration yeah. through the 19th century. In the very early 19th century, it's more likely to be families who would go yeah. to yeah. work in the cotton yeah. uh, mills. Yeah. And then by the mid 19th century, it's often single migrants like Sarah. Um, who end up much more isolated, of course, and, uh, more and more vulnerable. But there's a lot of debate too about who migrates, I think, whether it's the, the strongest and most ambitious, or if it's people who have to migrate because they're already failing. So there's a lot of, I mean, contemporary debate as well about the relationship between migration and mental health and the kinds of people who are prompted to migrate in the first place. And, and views of the people from the receiving population. Absolutely, yeah, of course. I mean, they very much argue that, you know, the landlords and others are sending their mad mm. off to England. <laughs> While in Ireland, asylum doctors are saying, no, 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 the best are migrating and the, the leftovers are sort of going mad the in Ireland. Views, yeah. Sorry? Mm. It's always the point of view where <laughs> yeah, you are. Exactly, yeah. And there was some, not positive views, but the, mm. the Irish were very welcomed, of course, at times of peak employment. Um, and, and some local authorities recognise that, that they're important in times of plenty and when they needed their labour. And some people in the local councils, clergymen and so on, would say, well, they are kind of our responsibility now because we want them when things are good. And when there's periods of high unemployment, you know, we can't just say, well, off you, go. off you go again. So the the viewpoints, even in the 19th century, were very, very varied, but there, there was an element of sympathy mm. as well yeah. amongst some quarters, which I think came out yeah, well, well in the play as well, about, about their real predicament. Not really, no. I mean, if you look at the... <laughs> what goes into it. I mean, in the 19th century, you have quite a strong campaign against putchy making. Um, this is obviously a homemade whiskey here. <laughs> um, so you know, there's a campaign against it in Ireland, A, because the tax inspectors are missing the revenue, and B, because um, of various temperance movement. But there was, you know, it was very hard liquor. I mean, it is very um, high and pure alcohol, so it's not really something you'd want to drink too often. And they brought that pattern to Liverpool and, as we saw, sort of produced it from potato peelings um, in the, the double, double, double wobble shops. Wobble shops. <laughs> there you go, I've heard it once too often. <laughs> and, and I think if you're, I mean, I'm no expert in this, but I think if you're not careful when you're distilling yeah. alcohol, you get the wrong kind of alcohol, yeah. you get methyl alcohol, which is yeah. poisonous. Yeah. Yeah. So. If the alcohol were not pure in those things, and it had some methanol, that it could exactly. yeah. cause quite a lot of mental problems. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is that not possible that there was a, an excessive amount of bad drink and that starts it off and that could then be hereditary as well? Yeah, I think it's, it's very likely.
of alcohol-related insanity recorded amongst the Irish. But I think it's impurity in the alcohol rather than the alcohol itself. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I don't know an awful lot I about don't know that, you but, about it, but it, it yeah. sounds very, very plausible, yes. I'm a chemist, that's where Ah, I'm well, there you go. You know better about that. <laughs>
uh, to get any kind of relief from your poverty, you had to go into a workhouse, which was punitive. It was like a jail, you know, you were separated from uh, from your family. People of different ages were put in different places. You were given terrible things like hemp picking, breaking rocks and things. But the idea of it was so bad, you'd, you, you would do anything to get yourself out of that, which doesn't work as a philosophy. It's a stupid philosophy, um, but it, it was a conservative philosophy. Um, so the, the idea was then, that's what you do with your poor. You put them in these big, virtually, virtually jails, which actually exacerbated the problem of their poverty and, and whatever problems they came in with. The other thing about the, the, a lot of the Irish people, when they came off this terrible uh, crossing in the winter, they were ill. <laughs> physically ill, they were weakened by poverty uh, before they, they got on the boat, further weakened by illness and cold when they, they came off. Some of them, a lot of people only spoke Gaelic, so they're trying to diagnose what's wrong with, well, yeah, you know, they're just tapheads, put them in the, the, the asylum wards. Um, so it was, it was quite often you didn't know what to do with these people. Well, melancholia was a, was a recognized notion, which you know, we, we might call depression now, but the, the, it was, uh, that melancholia was, uh, yeah, disappointment, melancholia, um, those kind of things where, I mean, diagnosis is difficult, isn't it? it it's the, the, I mean, we're not that far from guesswork now, sometimes, but it was, it was um, very difficult to, to form scientific diagnoses at times. You yeah. do come across disappointment and love, just to talk mm. about broken hearts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, there's a lot of jilted young women, and of course that that was not just the disappointment of losing your your boyfriend, but actually probably yeah. had economic consequences yeah. as well in in many many cases. So yes, families splitting up, bereavements. Yeah, bereavement. Um, is quite those are also mentioned quite often. So the stresses really and strains and poverty is is referred to all the time. This this idea that. Maybe these people weren't actually mentally ill, but they were just so poor and yeah. um, and disappointed um, that they were kind of defeated really by life. It's not clear that there's a clear dividing line between, you know, enormous stress and anxiety caused by mm. social circumstances and what we would now currently call, a, a, you know, particular mental health diagnosis. I'm wondering if it gets time to have a cheering drink. I think so. I think it's time for a We risk mental decay strong. from the so, demon of alcohol. Well, thank you to my co-panelists very much. Thank you. Thank you.